Why don't we pray together? Father, what an awesome thought that you love us so much that that one day you're going to come and uh, take us away. We sang about what a glorious day that's going to be. And the reason, God, is because of perfect and absolute love that you have for us. And so, Father, we just want to... We just want to honor you, Lord. We This weekend we remember those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we might, um, so that we might have freedom. And God, I just want to remember those and honor those. I get to preach, God, because men and women died to give me that right and to preserve that right. We get to worship here today because people died, Father, just so we could come and sing. And they died to keep us free. And just help us to remember that and to honor them for that. And Jesus, then you came and died to set us free from sin so we could be free forever. I mean, we're celebrating you today, Jesus, because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the reason I'm free, the reason we're free, and the reason we can be forgiven... It's because you gave your life. And I just, I thank you for that, Lord Jesus. I thank you that you ransomed us and set us free. So we just love you and we honor you this morning now in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, I, every time I just, you know, I kind of watch those videos and, you know, and I think about that. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to... To Arlington, or you know, many of you have been to Washington, and you know, we just we take for granted the price people paid for us. You know, um, I had the privilege—I guess you call it a privilege—I got to go to India three times on a mission trip. And if you've never got off an airplane in a faraway land and walked into an airport where they had guns and stuff, you, it's hard to to realize what we have. And, y'all, we're blessed. We got our issues. I, I understand that. But we are, we are blessed to live in a place we live. And so we just need to remember that um, this weekend. We need to remember it all the time. We need to remember that this weekend. And to think that the Lord Jesus gave his life as a, um, so we could have not just the freedom we have now, but we could be free forever is, is even a more awesome thought. Uh, take your Bibles and... Um, how many, did you bring your Bibles this week? How many of you got them? Good. Good. Revelation 13. Go to the end of the book. Turn left. It's about six or eight chapters. Revelation 13. We're going to look there in just a minute. Surprisingly enough, I know you were very surprised to wake up last Sunday. The, the end of the world didn't come like the guy predicted. And um, I thought it was interesting that on Monday he had a new prediction. <laughs> Dude ain't learned a thing, man. He was wrong in 94. He was wrong in 2011. He says, okay, we're going to try this again. The third time's the charm, maybe. So he set another date of October, and I, you know, and it's probably not going to happen. I mean, it could, but I'm not going to say that. But what's interesting and it's kind of cool is that, man, even in spite of the fact that we live in this anti-Christian world, and it really is, we're living in a post-Christian era. Uh, I think it was Peter Colin or Conlon that said, that on Tuesday there were like 6,700 uh, Google stories 
about the new prediction. And so in spite of the fact that we live in a nation that's got some atheistic and agnostic and uh, apathy influences, I mean, people are still interested in the rapture and they're interested in the end of the world and they're interested in what to come. And, and I believe the reason is because I believe we all know in our heart that this isn't all there is. That there's something else and people are kind of looking and thinking uh, about what that might be. And so, uh, but the fact is, there is, uh, we do live in kind of an anti, you know, kind of a post-Christian era. Uh, a lot of stuff out there. There's probably, uh, there's probably more animosity toward Jesus and more animosity toward the church or at least toward Christianity today than, than any point that I remember in my lifetime, which would, you know, I'm old enough to say that's, it, it's worse now than it's ever been. You probably, uh, Notice that this coming week, there's a school in San Antonio that's fighting a lawsuit because the kids want to pray at school. You know, you got one, two kids out of, a, I don't know, a couple thousand that don't want to have a prayer. And so, you know, we have to, you know, uh, fight for that. And then there was this deal up in the Northeast. This, they, they've been having, this one school been having graduations in a building for 75 years. And it has a cross on it. And somebody who went to graduation last year didn't have a, evidently didn't even have a kid in graduation, but they went to graduation, sued the school system and said it has a cross. And so the school says, okay, we won't have graduation there. So, so I mean, we, I'm just saying we're living in a post-Christian era. And so what's, and, and the reason this is happening is so, or, or the reason all this is there's a spiritual battle that goes on. There's a spiritual battle, not just in America, but all over the world between good and evil, between God and Satan, between Christ in, in the, the devil between the church or Christianity and, and every other religion. And so there's this, this battle, this spiritual battle. Now, we don't talk a lot about it. You know, we don't, we don't uh, say a lot about it because if, you know, if you come in here every week and I'm talking about the fourth dimension and all this stuff, you're going to go, this guy's whacked. Okay. But the reality is there is a spiritual battle that's going on between Satan and his demons and, and Jesus and his angels and, uh, you know, and it's kind of talked about, and we kind of read this last week, but, but you don't need to turn there, but let me just read a little bit from Second Thessalonians, because we're going to go, I, I gotta, I'm gonna clarify something in just a minute. But, but listen, in Second Thessalonians, talking about the second coming, Paul writes, and I'm gonna pick up in verse five, he says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, talking about the, the law, the coming of the Antichrist and the lawless one. And, and now you know that what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. In other words, there's something that's holding the lawless one back. He says, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of this coming. And so what Paul, Paul was writing to church in Second Thessalonians, and, and we talked about last week the coming of the Antichrist and the rapture in the last few weeks. We've talked about all this stuff. And he says, you know, that's coming, and it's starting. The evidence is starting. He says, but right now there's a restrainer. There's one that's kind of holding, that's kind of got got his hands around the, 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 the enemy and he's limited in what he can do. And that restrainer or that one that he's talking about, I believe is the Holy Spirit. And I believe that what's going to happen is when the church is taken out the rapture, which we've been talking about, then the Holy Spirit is going to loosen his grip and Satan is going to be free to bring about great deception and great spiritual warfare and all this stuff. And so, but, but all I'm saying is, that right now, even though there's this spiritual battle going on around us, it's limited because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, 
when the end times are ushered in, the Holy Spirit's going to be taken out. Not that he's going to disappear because he's God and he can't, but he's going to, the limiting influence that he has is going to be released. And Satan is going to be free to go and deceive and destroy and defeat people. Uh, you know, and so just I just want you to think about we're remembering our, our veterans this week. There's a, there, they fought a battle so we could be free. Well, there's a spiritual battle goes on that, uh, that, that we're fighting so that we can be spiritually free. And so I want to talk about that this morning. But before I get to that, I, I got to come back to this. It came to my attention a couple times last week that some of you that were here last week were a little bit confused about the message. Now, if you weren't here last week, you're going to be really confused. But let me just try to let me just try to give you a real quick synopsis of what we've talked about. Uh, Jesus is going to come and rapture or take the church out. After that, he's going to usher in the seven years of great tribulation. The first three and a half are going to be pretty good. It's going to be, you know, there's going to be some stuff going on, but not so bad. The second three and a half are going to be really horrible. We're going to look at them a little bit. And so there's going to be this great tribulation period. We talked about uh, during this tribulation period, there are going to be really multitudes of people that come to faith in Christ. And we talked about those people last week. But where the confusion came is uh, I talked about who they were, where they came from, who they were not. And so let me clarify who they're going to be. Obviously, those people that are saved during the Great Tribulation are going to include 144,000 Jews from the 12, 12,000 each from the 12 tribes of Israel. That's in uh, chapter uh a couple different chapters in Revelation. Uh, the first chapter that talks about it is, uh, I think it's chapter 8, or excuse me, chapter 7. It talks about the seal of the 144,000. And then it comes up again, uh, I think, probably in chapter 14. And so there's going to be 114, or 144,000 Jewish young men that are going to be saved. Again, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And we believe, or many uh, scholars believe, that they're going to be sharing the gospel. They're going to be evangelists or, or, or testifiers of what God's done in their life. There's also going to be two witnesses, which it talks about, I think, in Revelation 12. Um, we, we referenced them last week. They're going to be preaching during the middle of all this stuff. So a lot of people are going to be saved. In fact, the Bible says there's, it's going to be people from every tribe, every language, and every nation. So there's just going to be multitudes of people that are saved. Now, here's where the confusion came in, I think. Those multitudes are not going to be people who have heard the gospel their whole life and rejected it. Based on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 9 through 12. Those multitudes are going to come from the people who have, who have not had enough information to hear the gospel. They're going to hear the gospel. You know, as we speak this morning, uh, a fourth of the world's population basically has never heard the name of Jesus. Another fourth, roughly have limited amount of information, cannot really make an informed decision on Jesus Christ. Well, out of those three and a half or so billion, many people are going to be saved. But I, as I understand the scriptures, and this is kind of the point here, and this is where some of you got confused. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12, that because of the deception of the enemy and a delusion sent by God, those who have refused Christ before the rapture, are going to refuse Christ after the rapture. Okay? Now, some people say, yeah, but Mike, I mean, God, you mean God's not going to give them another chance? 
And some people, say, some people kind of have an issue. They think, well, you know, it's not right for God to not give them another chance. If you hear the gospel, you got a chance. Take the first chance. Take the second chance. But don't wait to the 48th chance. Because once the rapture comes, you're not going to get a chance. Now, a lot of people think, well, God's harsh and that's not fair. And I, well, let me just say two things. Number one, if God was fair, we'd all die and go to hell. If he was fair. But he's gracious and he's merciful, so he's given us an opportunity. Every one of us have an opportunity to give our heart and our life to Jesus Christ. And if you've never had the opportunity, you're going to have an opportunity today. So we're going to be without excuse. Rapture's going to come. You need to be ready. If you miss the rapture, don't count on another chance. Okay? Don't count on it. Because the Bible says it ain't going to happen. But I'm going to show you this morning out of the scriptures why it won't happen. Because people are going to be deceived and people are going to be deluded because of uh, the unholy trinity. All right. Now, I hope I've clarified that. I probably would confuse you. Now, if you weren't here last week, just go online and check out the sermon and you'll, you'll understand what we're talking about. Okay. All right. Let's read uh, Revelation chapter 13. Because I want you to see why this, 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 you know, this deception thing, man, is the real deal. Okay, even those people that, that know the gospel, they say, well, I know the gospel. Well, there is, listen, it's going to change. It is going to change. So let's pick up Revelation chapter 13. It's kind of odd. We're going to read verse 1 and then we're going to skip a bunch, okay, down to verse 11. Uh, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, and the dragon, that's, well, we'll define him in a minute. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. Then down to verse 11. Then I saw another beast, the second beast, the third part of the Trinity, coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. You ought to underline that, deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that it could not speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. All right, now let me just kind of set this up. Satan, we know, is a master deceiver. He is a counterfeiter. His, if you look in the scriptures, he's always, he always wanted to be God, and so he's always tried to offer something to make himself look like God, but he always offers a counterfeit. It's always second to what God can offer. And, you know, that, that's a good rule of thumb when it comes to temptation. Satan's always going to offer you a counterfeit 
to what God wants to offer you, the, gener- the, the original or the genuine article. So that's just kind of something to keep in mind. Now, because he's a counterfeiter, he masquerades as an angel of light. And this collection of verses kind of gives us some insight because God in his sovereign wisdom, I don't know why God did this. I'm not going to ask him. It's kind of his universe. He can do what he wants to. But God decided to give Satan, uh, to give him the, the opportunity to have this unholy trinity to deceive people that didn't want to follow Christ. And so we got this unholy trinity. Uh, and so I want to look at them this morning, and then we're going to talk about a really, really controversial thing to kind of wrap the thing up, okay? So let's talk about the three parts. We mentioned last week the unholy trinity. Uh, first here is the dragon. If you look at verse 1, it says, And the dragon, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and the dragon stood on the shore uh, of the sea. Now, the sea is probably a reference to the multitude. So, so the dragon was kind of over the multitude. But the dragon is Satan. Uh, talks about that in chapter 12. We won't spend any time there. He's, you know, Satan's kind of the false god. He's kind of the unholy equal to the father. Okay. The second part of this unholy trinity in verse 1 there, it calls him the beast. The beast, no, it says, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. In other words, coming out of the multitude of peoples. Now, interestingly enough, the beast references the Antichrist. I know we've talked about the Antichrist a little bit over the last couple of weeks. We're going to spend a little more time there with him this morning. Now, John MacArthur notes this word beast here. It doesn't refer to a domesticated animal, but rather to a wild, savage, vicious monster, thus describing Antichrist as a ferocious and rapacious personality. Now, we'll see kind of why that's true in just a minute, but the beast has to be understood kind of as a kingdom. He represents a kingdom, but he's also a person. And so that that whole picture there of him where he had ten horns and seven heads and and ten diadems or ten crowns on his horns, um, that kind of suggests that he's coming, he represents a kingdom. Now, if you study Old Testament prophecy, the book of Daniel, you'll know that in the end time, there's going to be a revived Roman Empire, much similar to the Roman Empire of, uh, you know, of the turn of the century uh, and time of Jesus and the uh, period of the Caesars and all. But there's going to be a, a new, a revived Roman Empire. And this leader, this beast, this Antichrist is going to arise out of that group of leaders, out of that group of nations. Now, it's going to be some type of Roman confederacy. Maybe it'll be the European Union or maybe something to that effect. But there's going to be this group of nations that get together and they're going to have a great amount of power. Well, one of them is going to rise up above everybody else and he's going to be wiser and smarter and stronger and meaner and more deceptive and more dynamic and more powerful and all these things. And he's going to rise up and he's going to be that beast. He's going to represent those kingdoms, but he's going to be a person. Some people think he's just a kingdom, but he's not. He's a he. He comes out of the people. He's a person. In fact, the Bible tells us in Revelation 19 verse 20 that he and the false prophet are going to be cast into the lake of fire. You can't cast a kingdom in there, but you can cast a person. So he is a person empowered by the enemy. Now, we've said a lot about him, but I want to give you just some insight. John MacArthur gives a great description of him based on the kind of following verses 2 through um, 8 or 9, but gives you, kind of tells us some characteristics. Now, I don't want to get bogged down here, but I want you to see who this enemy is because, because the Antichrist is so strong and powerful, he is going to be able to deceive and bring deception 
to the whole world. But notice, first of all, his authority. Look in verse 2. It says, The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. In other words, those are, those are images of power and destruction. Just hold that thought. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But he, he resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power. The dragon is who? Satan himself. He gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. And so he's going to, this Antichrist is going to have great authority. Because he's going to rise out, he's going to come out of this leadership of these powerful nations. And at that point in time, they may may very well be the most powerful entity on earth. And so he's going to have great authority. But not only does he have great authority, notice the the acclaim that's going to come to him. Verse 3 says, One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed, and the whole world was astonished. And followed the beast. And so he's going he's to be a person of great acclaim. It's going to appear to the world that he died and that he came back to life. And the world is going to look at him and go, wow. They're going to be astonished. Now, Satan is a counterfeiter. What does that look like? Jesus Christ who died, crucified, buried, raised again. Satan's always going to counterfeit something that's not quite real, but it looks like what God offers. And so he's going to do this. He's going to have a claim. He's going to have authority. But notice also in verse 4, read chapter 4 or verse 4 there. It says also about him that men worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worship the beast. And then they ask... Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? And so he's going to have adoration. People are going to, he's going to be the object of worship. I mean, that's what he wants. He's going to be an object of worship. And then look at chapter uh, 13. Look at verse 5 and 6. Let's go ahead on. It says, The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. So he's going he's to be a person of great arrogance. He's going to be a person of great adoration. He's going to be a person of great acclaim. He's going to be a person of great authority. He, he, he's going to be, if you will, he's going to be set up as God during this period of tribulation. And chances are that this, uh, this false worship here and this arrogance is probably going to happen in the temple, the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, where he's going to set himself up as the object of the world's worship. And then read on, verse 7, look at his activity. Look at his activity there. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. That's why so many of the, uh, Tribulation saints, we talked about how they're going to be beheaded. They're, they're going to be beheaded for their faith because he has the power to make war against them and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. That's his activity. And then in verse 8, it talks about his admirers. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. And so this antichrist, this beast, this evil, powerful world ruler, man, he's going to have all the answers for everybody. He's going to be so deceptive. He's going to look like the Messiah. 
Multitudes are going to think he's the Messiah. So real. But there's a third part. The dragon is Satan. The first beast is the Antichrist. The third member of this unholy trinity. Let's look at him. Verse 11. says, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. Now, interesting, you see the difference between the second beast and the first beast? The first beast looked like a leopard, ferocious, a bear and a lion, ferocious and destructive and powerful. But the second beast looked like a lamb. When you, when you see a lion or you see a bear or you see a leopard, we think about power. We think about destruction. We think about, you know, killing and death. But when you see a lamb, I mean, you think about Sunday school, right? You know, the pictures of Jesus is, I mean, you know, it just seems so interesting and so just, you know, lambs are cute and they're cuddly and, and all this stuff. Well, this guy is going to appear you know, Satan's going to be the powerful one. Man, he's going, to be the, he's going to be the nice guy. As a matter of fact, listen to this description from John MacArthur. He said, the false prophet arises from the earth and it suggests that he will be a subtler, gentler, less overpowering and terrifying than the Antichrist. He's going to be winsome and persuasive and the, the epitome of a wolf in sheep's clothing. I mean, you talk about some sweet sermons. He is going to be able to convince people. He's going to talk and, you know, when E.F. Hutton talked, everybody listened. Now, you young guys don't know who E.F. Hutton is, but those of us who are older, y'all remember the commercials. Y'all remember? Whenever E.F. Hutton spoke, people listened. Well, when this religious, this false prophet, and by the way, David Jeremiah is right, I believe, he is going to be a religious person. He is going to be some type of religious leader. Dr. Adrian Rogers calls him the anti-Holy Spirit, but he is going to be this smooth-talking, suave, debonair spiritual leader that has all the answers and just said, I mean, he's just believable. He's believable. That, my friends, is his personality. But let's look at his power. Not only uh, is he going to be a religious figure, but, but, but notice... And this is kind of going to be hard to do, but I, I, I want you to get this picture... Beginning in verse 12, I'm going to give you about seven different words. They're the same in the original language. They're the same word. They're the word for to make or to do something. They're words of action and words of power. Now, this guy is going to seem very innocent and winsome and wholesome. But he's going, to actually, he's going to have great power. So let me just tell you these words and then I'll make the connection here. In verse 12 it says there, well let's just kind of read along. It says he exercised, that's the word poieo in the Greek. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf. And he made the earth, made, same word, he made the earth and its inhabitants worship the beast. So he has the power to exercise all authority of the first beast. He has the power to make the earth and all the inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. And then in verse 13, it says, he performed, same word, great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven uh, to the earth in full view of men. By the way, does that remind you of anything? You remember in the Old Testament? Remember a guy named Elijah? Anybody remember? First Kings 18. There were 400 prophets of Baal. There was one Elijah. Y'all remember the story? Elijah says, you call down, 
we'll set up an altar and we'll put a bull on the altar and you call on your God and your God can consume the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the offering. And so they put a cow on the altar and they set it all up and, and the prophets of Baal began to chant and they began to sing and they began to jump up and down and do all this stuff, call on their God. And they began to cut themselves and bleed and they couldn't get their God to do anything. And so Elijah uh, dumped the water all over the altar and filled up the trenches around the altar. And just to make sure they knew it was wet, he did it again. And he called down fire from heaven and, and fire from heaven came and consumed the altar just, just like that. Here's our counterfeiter, Satan, comes and calls down fire from heaven. And everybody that, that are deceived are going to say, oh, that sounds like the Bible. And they're going to buy the lie. Verse 13. Let's look at verse 14. Another word there. It says, um, let's see if I can find it. It says, because of the signs he was given power to do. There's that same word. Uh, on behalf of the first beef, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them, same, same word there. Uh, he ordered them. And then he, and then in verse 15, goes on to say, he was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it can speak and cause, that's the same word there, so that he could cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Then in verse 16, he also forced the same word. Uh, he forced everyone, small and great, to receive a mark. Now, here's what I want you to understand about this. This false prophet is going to have the power to exercise authority, to perform great miracles, to order people, to, more, to make people, to force people to do what he wants him to do. Now, they're probably not going to know it most of the time. And so what's going to happen is there are going to be people that go into the... They're going to miss the rapture. They're going to know about Jesus. And they're going to know about the gospel. And they're going to think, well, you know, I need to give a life to Christ. But, but they're going to be deceived by the enemy because it's counterfeit, but it looks like it's real. He's got the power to do all these signs. As a matter of fact, he's going to set up an image. He's going to, uh, they're going to honor the one who looked like he died and was raised from the dead. And so he's got the power to, to counterfeit all this to happen. And so he's going to be a person of great power. And people are going to be deceived because of the power and the deception of the false prophet. And so we've talked about his personality and his power. I want us to look for just a few minutes this morning at his plan. And this is really what I want to talk about. Uh, look at verse 16. Well, let me read it and then we'll talk about it. Verse 16. He also forced, there's that word, forced everyone. Now, I know, and I didn't say this in early service, but I know in Texas, a lot of independent folk here, and we don't want anybody telling us what we can do, and we don't want anybody telling us what we can't do, right? I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of the American deal. Well, he's going to force people, cause people, Force everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Now, whatever else you think about the end time, about everybody knows about 666. I mean, you know, I didn't go see the movie The Omen. I didn't go see the remake. It was about 
the, the number 666. In fact, the, uh, the first church, first, when I became a youth pastor full-time, the first full-time church I worked at was in Iker, North Carolina. You know what our zip code was? 28666. I hated to write it on my return address. You know, because we, we have an aversion. We have an aversion to the number 666. In fact, if you go to the store this afternoon and you buy lunch and it comes out to $6.66, you'll, you'll want to buy a piece of gum or something just to change that number. Right? In fact, I read this week that when President Reagan retired from the presidency, they moved to Bel Air. Their address was 666. And Miss Nancy had the address changed because she didn't want her address to be uh, the number of the mark. There's this aversion in our culture. There's this idea. So, so let's, just for a minute, let's talk about what does this thing mean? I mean, what is this whole deal about the mark? And, and I wish I could, you know, uh, man, I went to this prophecy conference a few years ago and, and I just thought, man, I just, if somebody could just tell me what that's going to be. And so I want you to know this morning, I can't tell you exactly what it's going to be. But what I can give you is some characteristics of the mark that I think are important for us to know. And I'll tell you why it's important in just a minute. First of all, it's a mark of identification. It is a mark of identification. Notice uh, verse 17 says, So that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the mark. Now, notice this. The mark is the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so what happens is when a person takes the mark of the beast... It's going to identify them with the beast. It's, people are going to know that they belong to the beast, that they belong to the Antichrist. Now, here's what's interesting. And let me see if I can find this because we're talking about Satan being a counterfeiter. If you go back to uh, chapter 7, let's see. Uh, all right, uh, chapter 7, verse 3. It says, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the forehead of the servants of our God. God's going to put a seal on the forehead of the 144,000. So guess what Satan's going to do? He's going to come along and he's going to counterfeit God. He, he wants to be like God. So he's going to put a mark on all of those who worship him. It is going to be a mark of identification. It is going to identify people that they worship and honor the beast. It's a mark of identification. Secondly, it's also going to be a mark of information. It is going to be a mark of information. And what I mean by that is that it's going to be able to communicate a lot of different things to people. Now, what's interesting to us is currently there's enough technology uh, to be able to put a um, to be able to put a chip in your hand or your arm or your forehead or somewhere on your body, they can technology is available to put a chip in that can communicate all kind of information. As a matter of fact, after I don't know if you remember, but back in in uh, when nine one one happened, they said a lot of the policemen and the firemen would write their number, their badge numbers on their body, so if they didn't make it people would be able to identify them. And so they knew going up, hey, we might not come back down. And so after all that happened, this company developed the Vera chip, which is about the size of a grain of rice. This is a radio frequency identification microchips, what it's called. But 
you can, they can put all kind of information in that and then they can monitor that and read it. As a matter of fact, uh, Grant Jeffrey in, uh, in, in David Jeremiah's book, Grant Jeffrey says this. He says, using existing technology, the mark or number 666 can be implanted under the skin of every person using that RFID microchip. A powerful electronic scanner could detect the chip from a distance and reveal all your personal information, far more than your name, address, age, and marital status. While the implanted microchip and its information would be readable by a radio frequency scanner, a person would not even know their information has been accessed or who would be accessing the information. Technology is already there. Now, let me say this. Technology is amoral. You know, having a, a, a chip that communicates information isn't necessarily good, nor is it necessarily bad. Now, it can be bad because the Antichrist can use it. But it could be good if it was put into an Alzheimer's patient and they were able to find them if they, you know, if they disappeared. So it's not that the technology is bad. But it's how it's used is bad. But what you need to understand is the technology is now available for them to, to put all kind of information in our body. And then it's accessible to who, you know, any government entity that has the ability to read it. So it's out there. It's a mark of information. It's a mark of identification. But number three, it's what I want to call a mark of desperation. Notice, if you will, back to, to, uh, chapter 13, and look again at the beginning of uh, verse 16. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive on a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. Now look at this statement. Why would he do that? So that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark. If you don't have the mark, you're not buying. You're not selling, you're not eating, you're not drinking, you're not going to be surviving. Surprisingly enough, we are, we are moving more and more and more towards a cashless society. Uh, David Jeremiah documents in his book, The Coming Economic Armageddon. Uh, in 1996, 80% of personal commerce was by check and cash. 80% of what we bought and sold, we paid for with a check, we paid for with coin, we paid for with cash. In 2009, 50% of what we bought and sold was by cash or check. In 2010, one year later, only 30% was by cash, by check, and by coin. Soon we will be a cashless society. Most of us have in our wallet a credit card or a debit card. I mean, a debit card is good as cash, right? I mean, almost everywhere you go, you take your debit card. I mean, the, the technology, y'all, it's, it's, it's right there. I mean, it's right there. And so what's going to happen is as the end times come, the, the, the beast, the false prophet is going to have the power and there's already the technology to implement uh a system to where if you don't take their mark in your hand, on your forehead, you won't be buying. You won't be selling. 
And so you won't be living. Now, uh, years ago, a number of years ago, W.A. Criswell recorded this statement from a man who lived under the communist regime in Bulgaria. But this is what that man said. He says, you cannot understand and you cannot know that the most terrible instrument of persecution ever devised is an innocent ration card. You cannot buy and you cannot sell except according to that little innocent card. If they please, you can be starved to death. And if they please, you can be dispossessed of everything you have. For you cannot trade, you cannot buy, and you cannot sell without permission. It is a mark of desperation. And then number four, it's going to be a mark of what I will call decimation. Look at chapter 14. Look at verse 9 of chapter 14. It says, The third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too, listen to this statement, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured at full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented, that's the person with the mark, with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. It's a mark of decimation. Imagine during that time if you don't bow your knee and worship this false God. You're not going to buy. You're not going to sell. You're not going to eat. You're not going to drink. Nor will your kids. Nor will your grandkids. What a horrible time that's going to be. You don't want to be there. You don't want to be there. And so you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. You need to be saved and born again so when he comes for his church, he takes you out. You don't want to be a part of this. If you've never given your life to Christ, man, today, today, you ought to give your life to Jesus because you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. If you're here this morning and you've never been born again, my hope and my prayer is that you'll be saved. Because you don't want to be a part of this. Now, those of you who are believers might be thinking, well, pastor, uh, we're not going to be, if, if the rapture happens like you say and the Bible says, we're not going to be here. Why does this matter to us? I'll tell you why it matters to us. Because uh, in Romans 8, I think it's verse 22, Paul writes about the birth pangs. You know, Jesus talked about, you know, the, the stuff that's, you know, uh, that's gonna, it's coming before it actually gets here. Now, we don't understand in America what persecution is. I mean, we really don't. I mean, you've been cussed at maybe or, you, you know, they ch- shut down our school graduation because of prayer. We don't know what it means to get beat up for what we believe. We don't know what it means to have our house burned down because we're a Christian. We, we don't know what it means to, to be martyred or to see people martyred. But the fact of the matter is, chances are, that happens everywhere else. And chances are, before Jesus comes, you and I are going to have an opportunity to be persecuted for our faith. Chances are, we're, some of us are going to have an opportunity. We're going to have an opportunity to stand strong.
when the enemy comes calling. David Jeremiah closes his, his chapter on the mark of the beast with this question. He said, what would you do if you were forced to decide between honoring God by refusing the mark or accepting it for the safety, security, and well-being of your family? My question would be, what would you do if you were forced to stand up for your faith knowing that you or your family might have to pay the price with their safety, their security, and their well-being. What would you do? Now, you might think, well, Pastor Mike, God would never expect that of us. Sure he would. Remember Daniel 3? Remember growing up in Sunday school? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember the story? They set up an image of Nebuchadnezzar and the whole, everybody had to bow down and worship it. And they said, not us. And they brought him. They said, listen, if you don't bow down and worship, we're going to throw you in the fire. They didn't bow down and worship. And what did they do? They heated it seven times. Wasn't it like seven times? And they threw him in. And here's what they said. They said, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, our God will protect us. And if our God doesn't protect us, we'll burn up. We're not going to bow down to your God. And they chose to not bow down. The day may very well come when you and I have to take a stand for what we believe. And it may cost us our safety, our security, and our well-being. It could happen. In fact, it probably will happen. My question is, My question is, do we have the courage to stand up against the enemy? Do we have the boldness to to say, I will honor the Lord Jesus Christ, even if it costs me my life? Imagine... If we have to stand up and they use our kids against us, our grandkids against us. Now, you'd say, oh, that would never happen. And it happens all over now. And so my question is, do we, do we have the boldness and the courage? Do we have enough spirituality to be able to take a stand and say, God, I'm going to stand for you no matter what? Do you have that? Do you have it? I've started praying for it. I think we're going to need it. Let me just share with you this thought and we'll we'll be done. Do you remember Jesus was talking to the disciples one time and one of the things he said is, he said, if you'll be faithful in the little things, then I'll trust you with the big things. Here's what I believe. If you and I want to have boldness and courage, for the big things. Big things are coming. We need to develop boldness and courage in the little things. So this week when we have an opportunity to give a witness for our faith, 
This week when we have an opportunity to say a word about what's right, even when it's not popular. This week when we have an opportunity to stand up and say, yeah, but this is what God says. We need to have boldness and courage. Because if we're going to be ready for the big stuff, we need practice on the little stuff. And so I want to say to you this morning, believers, be bold. Be courageous. One day we might need it. If you're not a believer, I want to say to you, be bold, be courageous. Give your life to Jesus today. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you that you will give us courage and boldness to stand in those days that are coming. Father, we believe we're going to be raptured and taken away. But we also know that there's going to be Wars and rumors of wars and birth pangs and there's going to be trouble and there's going to be difficult times. And we're going to need to stand with boldness and with courage. And God, I pray that every one of us who's a believer would be filled with the Holy Spirit. We would be empowered and equipped to be courageous and bold for the cause of the gospel. God, I believe we need to do that now so we'll be ready for then. And so I want to pray for our believers today. Lord, some of them need to make a new commitment to being bold and courageous for Jesus. But God, there's also some here this morning, they've never stepped out and said, I want to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I want to give him my heart and life. Lord, I pray they would be bold enough and courageous enough today to say, yes, I'm willing to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. God, there's others here this morning. They've, they've never been bold and courageous enough to, to get baptized, to declare to the world, hey, I've given my life to Jesus Christ. They, sure, they believe. But they don't even have the boldness and courage to get baptized, Father. How are they going to be bold and courageous enough to stand when persecution comes? Father, we, we, we need your spirit to come this morning. We need your spirit to fill our hearts. And we need your spirit to fill our lives. And we need your spirit to draw us to yourself. And so, God, I would ask you to come and fill us up with your Holy Spirit. God, I pray for those who need to be saved. They would be courageous enough to step out from where they are and come and, and share with Kyle or Wyatt or me that, hey, I, want to, I need to give my life to Jesus. So we can take your word and show them how to do that. God, others here, Lord, they... They need to step out and, and join the church or get back or come for baptism because they've never exercised boldness. And God, today would be a day to start, to begin trusting you to take a stand for Jesus. So God, if anyone needs to make a public decision today, I pray that you give them the courage to do that. And God, when it's all said and done, we'll give you the honor and the glory and the praise. And Father, we ask all these things now. In Jesus' name, amen.